Sales Tuners, Episode 121, Will Ibsen, Enterprise Account Executive at SAS Optics. If you start thinking in terms of, you know, what does it take to be excellent? You start elevating your activities to levels that you would never, ever get to if all you were focused on is, I got to hit quota. This is Sales Tuners with Jim Brown, the only weekly show where we talk about the attitude, action, and ability that gets sales reps and entrepreneurs to grow their revenue from $1 million to more than $10 million in just two years. All I do is win, 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 no matter what. Got money on my mind, I can never get enough. And every time I step up in the building, everybody hands go up. It's time. It's time. It's Sales Tuners time. I'm Jim Brown, your host, and our weekly inspiration comes from Dallin Oaks, who said, desires dictate our priorities, priorities shape our choices, and choices determine our actions. Today's guest is Will Ibsen, an enterprise account executive at SAS Optics, a platform that works with finance teams and CEOs who spend way too much time in spreadsheets managing their customers' subscriptions. Whether it's figuring out who to bill, when to recognize revenue, or even just how to manage churn, Will is able to help automate a lot of these processes by creating a single source of truth for revenue metrics. Ironically, Will continues a trend I've seen a lot of over the last couple of years of engineers turning to sales careers. And to me, this one is a match made in heaven. As a process engineer at Mercedes-Benz, he was trained to look for reputability, look for ways to improve systems, and then iterate on them. He's been able to do that not only for his clients, but also for himself, having been the top account executive at his company both of the last two years. Will told me his motivation was his one-year-old daughter waving goodbye to him each morning as he left for work, knowing that he was walking out the door to provide for her. He even said his close rate went up by about 10% the day he found out he was having her. All right, make sure you stick around until the end where I'll give my recap and top takeaways. You can also check out all the links and show notes at salesooners.com slash 121. But now let's get to the conversation where Will talks about how he stays connected to his first love and his passion for motorcycles. I grew up riding motorcycles. I started when I was four years old and competed professionally throughout high school. So from 07 to 2011. And uh, now, you know, I, I just don't want to give it up. It's still a little bit of a part of me. And so what we do is we go to different state fairs and motorcycle and car shows. And what we do is we have a motorcycle and a bicycle and we'll jump off these 15 foot trailers and jump onto these old cars and we smash out the windows and do burnouts and everyone cheers. And it's just a lot of fun. It's a way to, to stay, you know, riding and, and not have to be practicing every day, but uh, still get to enjoy the sport. I couldn't imagine. I, I I toyed with the idea of getting a motorcycle in my early twenties, and like all of my friends, were like you're an idiot, you will kill yourself. Now, I, unlike you, I didn't grow up with it since the age of four. Like I just want to get it to show off to everybody. And yeah, fortunately, I didn't do that because I probably wouldn't be here uh, right now. So you're you're going to help me better understand this as a, as an engineer, right? You're very process oriented, ones and zeros. Uh, how how does that translate into a sales process? One of the things that I think has helped me is as an engineer, you're trained to look for repeatability. You know, you, you've got this formula and this formula can apply to all kinds of different scenarios and numbers, et cetera. And so with my sales process, I, I've found to treat it the same way. So, 
you know, using the exact same template for my, my notes, using the same um, process for my cold call outreach, treating every opportunity the same, you know, cause I'm, I'm dealing with more of a SMB sales cycle. So I could work with, you know, anywhere from 200 to 300 businesses a year. And so fine tuning what the process looks like from start to finish has really helped ensure a couple things, you know, one that I can establish a baseline of here's what my sales process looks like. And I can then iterate on that, you know, make small improvements over time. And then two, I can really ensure that one, I never have to remember to follow up with a prospect and I never let any prospects slip through the cracks. So, you know, designing processes using different tools like SalesLoft is a really good tool to make sure that your, uh, your outreach is really consistent and effective. Another tactic that I've used is every single one of my opportunities in the CRM has some kind of follow-up task associated with it. And I actually have a report that tells me, you know, are there any of my opportunities that don't have one of those follow-up tasks associated with it? So that just ensures that there is no chance that I'll forget to follow up with a prospect. And, you know, steps like that to where you can just define different sequences and processes and then use automation to complement those processes has been really effective in making sure that, you know, I never... I never miss a lead. I, I joke with um, our founder and say that you got to just work the crap out of every lead. And uh, in that in that case, you know, using automation has helped a lot. Will I, I was I was just about to ask you how how you did that, how you kind of controlled that that process, and you started to go into you know sales loft and into your CRM, and you've even got the report and all that kind of stuff. What were some of the early stumbling blocks that you had as you were trying to figure out what that initial baseline was? I think one of the main things is, you know, I, I started relying too much on my own memory. And my wife will tell you, my memory is not that great. And um, I, I found that, you know, I was going through my list of opportunities and realizing, you know, I haven't talked to this person in three weeks. And, you know, that I had a, an action, a follow-up step on my end that I missed. And so I hated this idea that I could be potentially losing deals just because of my bad memory, you know, just because I'm forgetting to follow up with prospects. So as far as, as fine-tuning that you know, follow-up step, I really learned from missing a couple opportunities that I needed to start leveraging automation more to complement what I was doing. I like that. I mean, it's it's so amazing, right? Like I prided myself early on in my career about how great my memory was. And then as I started getting more and more responsibility or managing more and more deals, all of a sudden I thought like, I don't remember a thing. I had to start writing it down. And then to your point now, all we have all these systems that can help us automate that. So so let's flip the script, Will, over into managing the deal flow and the actual you know sales cycle. Uh, what, what are some of the things that you're doing there to, to learn how to control? Or what did you do to learn to control that? Yeah. So I think one of the things that as an engineer, you're also trained to do is you're, you're trained to look for problems and solve problems. You know, you're so focused on different problems and solutions. And so I think sometimes that can be hard when you've got a quota to reach and you've got a lot of pressure from your sales manager to hit your number. You can start shifting away from thinking about the customer's problem and more towards, let me just push my product. Let me get them to buy. I need as many contracts as I can. And so, you know, as an engineer, it's, it's, it's been more natural for me to focus on, hey, I'm really genuinely curious about understanding the problem that you're coming to me with. 
And I really want to understand, you know, what's a potential solution. And if it's not us, that's okay. It's not about me just convincing you to buy. It's about us exploring your problem together and then aligning on what's the best possible solution. So, you know, and and I say that like, it's still hard for me to fight that pressure of I got to make quota, I got to make quota and focus more on me. But I think it does help to always go back to asking the question of, you know, genuinely trying to understand what the customer's issue is and do we have the best solution for them? I was actually going to ask, you know, how hard that is for you uh, as an engineer. So I love the fact you just shared it, like that you still are sometimes challenged with it. Because I would assume, you know, as an engineer, you think, well, if this is the most logical solution or the most logical approach, why would you not do it? Like, how do you, uh, how do you balance that, Will, today? Oh, yeah. And, and that can be maddening, especially for an engineer. If, if any engineers and sales are listening right now, you understand that like when you do present the most logical scenario and solution in your mind, it's a home run. You might as well get the contract out right now and get them to sign. But one thing that I've realized over the years is that, you know, customers don't just buy 100% because of you know logic. So even if you do present just the, the perfect solution to their problem, there's also politics involved. You know, there's decision makers that have different priorities. There's, you know, emotions involved. You know, sometimes the decision's made just because the buyer likes the other rep more than they like, you know, you, or they're, they're more convinced that the other rep's more credible. And so you could genuinely have the best solution out there and the prospect not choose you. And I think that was one of my big challenges early on is, you know, I would get to the end of the, the sales cycle and think we got this in the bag and then the customer goes dark. And that's super hard to accept because you think, how in the world could you have made a different decision? And so what I had to learn kind of over time is I wasn't doing two things. You know, the first thing I think I wasn't doing is controlling the sales cycle and asking the hard questions like, hey, who actually makes this decision? you know, what competitors are you looking at? And what's your process for evaluating them? You know, because what I found is that a lot of my competitors were actually traveling to the the prospect and meeting with them on site. You talk about leverage. Interesting. Yeah. And, and I was just doing screen share meetings. So I was not top of mind, like some of my competitors were, you know, and other things like uncovering uh, the emotion behind the decision is, is something that I wasn't doing. Either so, I've had to come. A, I've had to really understand that there's a pendulum to sales. You know, there's there is the logical side that you'll find in an RFP that the customer will will tell you at the beginning of the sales cycle, and then there's other this other hidden side which really you know speaks to the art of sales, which is you know what's the emotion involved in this, and, and I think there's a little bit of a, a balance that you have to find in in mastering sales is. There is a logic side to it and there's an emotion side to it. And once you can capture both and understand the customer's problem from both perspectives, you're going to have a, a huge advantage. Well, you said it there. I mean, it, there is the art uh, as well as the science to the sales. But how, how do you suss all that out, Will? How do you, you know, you've, you, the, the word empathy is thrown around quite a bit, but how do you actually suss out that emotion? How do you get them to reveal that without them just saying, you know, hey, look, just, just show what you got, you know, give me the demo, you know, let's just check the boxes. Right, right. Yeah, because I, I think empathy is kind of idolized in sales and it's, it's thrown around and, you know, the, the best reps are the most empathetic ones. And so here I am, like I hear that and I think, okay, so the prospect's going to come to me. 
and they're going to say, you know, man, I've got this problem and it's just got me really down. And then I, I say back, well, you know, I, un- I understand that problem. And, and now I'm really down, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I'm like, boom, I nailed it. I'm empathetic. And it's, it's obviously not that, like, that's an extreme example. But, you know, what I found is no prospects were ever telling me the emotion involved in the problem. They were just telling me the problem, or maybe they weren't even telling me the problem that they were coming to me at all. And so I'm like... Or, or the real problem, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I'm like, how can I be empathetic when, you know, I, I don't even get any emotion from any of these, these prospects. And so what I've learned is I think empathy starts with understanding the emotion that could be associated with the problem. So when a prospect comes to me and says, you know, I've spent 15 hours this week on this spreadsheet and it's not reconciling with my general ledger, a response like, okay, so what are you going to do about it? Isn't empathetic. You know, that's just like, you know, let's get to the point and move on here. And that's kind of where I was in the early days. A response that's more uh, understanding is like, okay, that could, I could see how that could be really frustrating. Or, you know, I'm sure that's probably something that's keeping you up at night. Or, hey, you know, you're not the only one. Like, I talk to people like you every single day that have the same problem and the same frustration. And so now you're understanding them on both a logical and an emotional level. And, um, you know, that's, that's super powerful. If, if you were to, to think about when you were just getting started, making this switch over. Could you have now trained yourself or you know, obviously the previous version of yourself to be able to do that then? Or is this something that you kind of have to go through and feel out before you can understand the why behind it? I think I could have given myself some pointers. But yeah, I think that this is something that just does take a little bit of time where you have to, you know, one, you do have to understand the problem that they're going through so that you can associate a potential emotion with it. But yeah, you'll hear, you know, over time, you'll start hearing emotion as you tune into it. You'll start hearing frustration. You'll start hearing anxiety. And then once you've heard that from real people, then it's powerful. And then you can start going, okay, you know, I've heard the same emotion from prospect A. Prospect B, I can sense that that you're, you're feeling that as well. And I talked to prospect A and, um, you know, he's really happy now with what we've done. But yeah, I think you can, you can probably give some pointers in this area. But until you hear real people experiencing that real emotion, that's really powerful. That's something I'm trying to, to work on myself, right? So I spend my day coaching sales reps, you know, just like yourself to get to that point faster. And sometimes I just want to like bang my head against the wall and I have to stop and realize that I've been doing this for 15 years, right? Like I've heard all the stories of the actual customers telling me and what it sounds like and the words that they use and how they say it with the tone and, and all that, that when I hear it, it's just a natural thing. But to get someone who is brand new to sales and thus brand new to the product that they're trying to sell and brand new to the customer who has the problems that that product is a solution for, that's a really hard thing to do when you know, you're, you're kind of starting on that sales career. So that's, I'm, I'm glad you, you answered that way. Speaking of prospects, Will, I want to better understand how do you open up new opportunities today with, with your prospects? What's that look like? We're doing, you know, cold calling, emailing, and then we also use some Vidyard, like some video inserted into our email. But, um, you know, one thing that has helped me is th- this idea of trying to make a, a cold lead as warm as possible. 
And if you've ever used uh, LinkedIn Sales Navigator, there's this advanced search feature where you can look up all your second degree connections and you can add all kinds of filters like, you know, have they changed roles in the last 60 days, et cetera. So I found a lot of success in saying, LinkedIn, show me all of my connections connections to where I can say, you know, hey, Steve over at XYZ Company, understand that you're, uh, you went to college with your CFO buddy over at you know, ABC Company. We've helped you guys over the last three years. Do you think it would help Bob over at ABC Company? So, you know, you, you, you can't do that for every lead, but that has definitely helped me just try to get in the door as opposed to just doing a cold call out of the gate is, is using that advanced search feature. Yeah, I think that's such a uh, very underutilized tool. And I'm talking about the very specific tact that you talked about, right? Because everyone talks about, hey, best way to get into a deal is through a referral or through a warm introduction. Yeah, but how do you get it? How do you find it? And, you know, with LinkedIn continuously changing, uh, you know, their, their own product because they want people paying for Sales Navigator, all of that functionality now is over in Sales Navigator. And it is such a gold mine if you pay the $80 a month uh, that it takes. And look, I, I've said this before on the show. Even if your company will not pay for these subscriptions, you are a salesperson. You're the CEO of your own business, in my opinion. Invest in yourself. Maybe you spend a couple hundred dollars a month. Think about the commission you want to earn on the other side of it. If you can earn $2,000 a month in commission, is it worth it to spend $200 a month on tools to utilize yourself? That's a, it's a 10x ROI that I don't understand why people don't think more about that. Will, what, what do you think separates you from other salespeople? You know, I think one thing is is this mindset of it, this is not a game of me versus the prospect where I'm just doing as much as I can just to manipulate them or influence them to make a decision. I think I, I really try and take an approach of I'm going to work together with this person to find the best possible solution. So some of the more, you know, practical applications of that is, is one thing that I try to do a lot is... I try to understand what are the needs, what are the requirements for the, the problem that this prospect is looking to solve. And I know the market pretty well. I mean, I, I talk to all these prospects that are talking to my competitors. So what I do is I just show them, okay, here's your list of needs. Here's your list of requirements. Here's your options that best fit those needs. And, you know, here's some potential roadblocks that you probably should be worried about with some of our competitors. And here's a review to even back that up. You know, I'm, of course, they're going to be worried that I'm biased towards my product. So I don't ever say anything about a competitor's products, both good and bad, without having some kind of review on like G2 Crowd or Captera to back that up. And so what I find then is that instead of, you know, just following up and, and trying to battle this prospect to buy, I'm actually helping them in the sales process. And I just find that that takes a weight off of their shoulders and it just gets me in the door to influence in ways that I really couldn't if I just sent them a proposal and followed up every two weeks. As you were laying that out, it got me thinking right back to what you talked about earlier, though. That's the very logical process driven, you know, does it check this box or does it check that box? Is it, is it not? Absolutely. I literally have a template, a PowerPoint template that is the same for every prospect, but it's just customized depending on the needs in the system. So you can ab absolutely systematize that. Okay. But, but what I was getting at is like you, you talked about earlier how... 
people aren't buying because of just the logical reasons. They were buying because of those emotional reasons and how you had to, to blend those together. So how do you take that checklist, right? That ROI analysis or, you know, whatever the, the pros and cons and, and tie the story to it? I think, you know, even though the emotions are never written on that requirements list and that needs analysis, there's so much emotions behind that because, again, you're helping this prospect. So all of a sudden, your credibility goes up a lot. Their trust in you goes up a lot because you're actually coming alongside them to assist them as opposed to just being that kind of bug in their ear, annoying them each week. So yeah, absolutely. You know, the Robert Cialdini talks about different ways to to influence. And if people see you as credible, if people like you, you're a lot more influential. And there's definitely emotion behind that. So yeah, I think there's a lot to be said about coming alongside and helping the prospect make a decision as opposed to uh, asking for updates. You know, it's funny when I'm when I'm not traveling. I'm based in Indianapolis, Indiana, where uh, Exact Target was headquartered, and Exact Target was. I don't know the word to use. I wanted to say notorious, but for some reason, I feel like that has a negative connotation. I don't mean it that way. But Exact Target was notorious for writing the RFPs for their prospects. And so they loved the game of getting into RFPs because if they, they, they knew if they could get in early enough, and as you said, be right alongside the customer the entire way, the customer would say, hey, you know, we, we got to take this to RFP. Exact Target would be like, no problem. You should absolutely take this to RFP. Um, do you know what questions you would ask? Can, can we help you kind of put that together so that you actually compare apples to apples? But then guess what happens? They write the RFP so that the only winner can be exact target because they know what their product has that their competitors don't. And so it's a brilliant play to be able to do that. And you truly are, as you said, selling alongside them as opposed to just kind of checking those boxes. So I love that. Well, let me ask you this. You've been the top rep for the last couple of years. How do you sustain that high level of performance without getting burnt out? So I think it's two things um, for me. So one thing is, you know, a little bit of a, a bookworm. So I think once you read a book, you get fired up about a new idea that you can implement or take action on. And that's really critical, I think, to, you know, just changing up the scenery and keeping things fresh and looking to always improve. Books will give you those ideas to make changes. I think the second thing is when you start sharing your knowledge with the other reps, what you find is you, you get a sense of rejuvenation, you know, especially with the new reps that are just coming in. They're really hungry. Um, they're excited to learn stuff that you've known for a few years that, you know, are kind of old hat for you, but are really new for them. So, you know, I've, I've seen making a couple cheat sheets as far as hey, this is what really matters in our product to prospects, focus in here. And, and just trying to help reps kind of find some shortcuts is something that I've found is, is fun to do. They really appreciate and their energy kind of rubs off on me. So I would say those two things, reading books and, and sharing your knowledge has helped me a lot. I love that notion of being able to share your knowledge. Um, what I found with that, that may be interesting for you and, and maybe not totally fine, but Something that I found interesting is when I start to find those shortcuts and I deliver them to reps early on, they try to go too fast and get just to that thing that actually matters when... Oh, uh, yeah. 
right? So you know that there's, a, there's three other things you got to do before you get to ask that question, right? Before you've earned the right to get that question, right? Kind of tee it up, but they don't know it. So they just kind of go right there immediately. But it's, it's again, it's, it's all this stuff. Like you said, it's, it's old hat for, for you, but it's brand new for them. So love the conversation, but Will, I've got to take a quick break so that we can say thank you to my sponsors. When we come back, it's going to be time for the money round. So you don't go away and sales sooners, you don't go away there. We'll be right back. Costello is pioneering the way companies build and execute sales playbooks. The platform helps sales reps prepare for calls, ask timely questions, tell relevant stories, and sync insights back to their CRM, all while showing managers and reps the gaps in every single deal so they can work them together to move them forward. With Costello, sales leaders can identify what's working on the front line and replicate success across their entire team. Learn more and see a demo at andcostello.com. That's A-N-D-C-O-S-T-E-L-L-O.com. We're back. And it's time for the money round. Will, are you ready for the money round? Let's do it. What's the one thing that has contributed most to your transformation from normal to exceptional? So I think it's learning to prioritize an honest call over a comfortable call. You know, early on, I think you just want to get through your pitch and you want to get comfortable with how the product works, et cetera. But what I found is I started missing a lot of important things, you know, like we've talked about on the emotional level as well as you know, who the decision makers are, who the competitors are in the deal. Once I, I really learned to prioritize getting to the truth as opposed to feeling like I got to know somebody and made a friend, I really started seeing um, a huge change in, in my performance. And what, what helped me get there was reviewing a lot of recorded calls. And one of the best coaches I've ever had, Margaret Winnegar, really helped drill down on some of those moments where... I was skipping over an opportunity to dig in just a little further and get a little more detail and understand what's really going on. If you were to start over the day in sales, what would you tell yourself to spend the next 30 days doing? I would say learning everything I can about influence and emotional intelligence. That was a real gap in my knowledge early on. And um, I think that's so important to sales is understanding why do people make decisions in the first place. So I would probably read books about, you know, Robert Cialdini's influence is a great one. Uh, How to win friends and influence people is another great one. And just understanding the fact that people oftentimes, you know, make decisions based on emotion and justify with logic. Two-part question for you here. Which phrase describes you best and why? I love to win or I hate to lose. So it's I love to win. And the reason is, is because this takes me back to my dirt biking days the, one of the most important principles of riding a dirt bike is you go where you're looking. So you can have all the right technique, you can have the perfect form, and you might not actually you know, get up the obstacle that you're going over. And uh, it all depends on where your eyes are. So I'm a big believer of, you know, if you're on the edge of a cliff and you're just looking down thinking, I don't want to go down there, guess where you're going? Down the cliff. But if you're looking at that thin razor edge, you're going to get there. You know, aim small, miss small. Great movie there at the Patriot. So yeah, I think you got you're going you're going to go where you're focused. Love to win. Well, you've mentioned a couple of books already, but what's a book that you've read multiple times or always find yourself recommending to others? Yeah, so this is an old classic, but uh, Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Effective People. Not a lot of books that I've read actually change like my day to day life. This is one of those few books that I can honestly say I'm a different person after reading it. I'm sure most of the listeners have heard of that book, but if you haven't read it, it is a, a great use of your time. 
it'll help you improve both your personal and professional life. Couldn't agree more. And sales tuners, if you'd like to check out Will's suggestion of the seven habits of highly effective people for free, head on over to salestuners.com slash book. And there you can sign up for a free 30-day trial of Audible and browse their over 150,000 titles. Again, that's salestuners.com slash book. And I just reread that book again this year with my team. All of us did it together. And it just, it really will. It will change the way you look and do everything. So great suggestion. Will, what's currently at the top of your bucket list? One of the top items is I have to, have to, have to go hike the five cities of Cinque Terre with my wife. I love Italy. Like you mentioned earlier, I want to just be sipping a cappuccino, looking out over the ocean, wife next to me. That is one of my dreams. And I know I promised you spring 2020, all you listeners can hold me to that as well. What's the biggest piece of advice you have for all the sales tuners out there grinding? I would say ignore quota and just pursue excellence. Um, and what I mean by that is I think it's, it's just super easy to get focused on your percentage to quota, your peers percentage to quota and focus more on the results rather than the activity that will get you to the results. So, you know, asking yourself the question, do I really understand this customer's problem? And I really coming up with the best solution possible you know, what would an excellent rep do in this scenario or do today or do in this next call? If you start thinking in terms of, you know, what does it take to be excellent? You start elevating your activities to levels that you would never, ever get to if all you were focused on is I got to hit quota, I got to hit quota, I got to hit quota. So ignore quota, pursue excellence. Talking with Will was a really good way for me to start off this year. His focus on the process helped me think through some of the challenges I've been having recently. He said if he could help you in any way, to feel free to reach out to him on LinkedIn. Let's get to my top takeaways. Number one, systematize your follow-up. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, persistence pays, many times. Well, I hope they were talking about sales because it couldn't be more true. I've read startling stats that say on average, a sales rep will only reach out to a prospect two times before giving up. That just seems ludicrous to me. Even if your company doesn't invest in software for you, and regardless of whether they're an active opportunity, a warm lead, or a brand new cold prospect, find a way to build a process around your follow-up. After every touch you have, immediately schedule the next touch. If you use Salesforce, HubSpot, or even Pipedrive, you can actually run a report that shows you any contacts that don't have a next activity. Don't lose deals simply because you forgot to follow up. Number two. Understand the emotion associated with the problem. Will asked the great question, how can I be empathetic when I never even get emotion from a prospect? In order to be able to either elicit an emotional response from a prospect or pick up on their pain, you have to fully understand the emotion that typically surrounds a problem that they're having. You may hear them say they spend 15 hours looking at a spreadsheet each week. And yes, knowing that's a trigger, it's your responsibility not to just get to the point, but dig deeper. Don't ask them what they're going to do about it. Ask them what else they would be spending that 15 hours on if they didn't have to use it staring at a spreadsheet. This understanding will allow you to build a real relationship with your prospect because they'll feel like you get them as a person. Number three, build the business case. If you sell in a known competitive environment, why not do some of the work for your prospect and build the business case for them? Most likely, they will have gone through a sales cycle for your product or service only once whereas you've gone through it 10 times this week. You know the common issues. You are familiar with the competitors and their offerings, and you've heard your prospect talk about their specific challenges. Document all the requirements. 
show them their options, point out potential roadblocks, both with your product and the competitors, and then back that data up with client references or even online reviews. Taking the weight off their shoulders and providing the grading rubric can give you more influence over the deal. That's it. Those are my takeaways, but I'd love to hear yours. Please tweet at me at SalesTuners or shoot me an email, jim at SalesTuners.com. I reply to every message that I get. All right. I hope to see you next week. Until then, I'm Jim Brown. Let's make it rain. Thank you for listening to Sales Tuners. Stay up to date at www.salestuners.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. And they stay there.